everybody, and welcome to the Elsewhere Podcast. My name is Ian Ditchburn, and I am joining you today from a slushy afternoon here in East Vancouver. If you're listening around the same time and around the same place, congratulations. I think you've picked a wonderful time of year to cuddle up with a warm podcast, maybe a hot cup of coffee. But no matter the season, and no matter the beverage, I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. It is my second in a series of three conversations I recorded in Mexico. And this one is with linguistic anthropologist Sophie Walters. We recorded it in San Cristobal de las Casas, which is a beautiful town in, uh, in Chiapas, the southernmost state in Mexico. Very indigenous state, a very politically volatile state, as you'll hear, and one which has no shortage of very interesting stories. Now, this conversation is special because I believe it is the only podcast I've done so far where the interview guide that I'd written beforehand just went completely off the rails. And that's not a bad thing, but at the beginning, you'll notice that I I never actually formally introduced Sophie. That's because I started recording just to get some levels and the conversation just kicked off and I decided to keep recording. And the result is a pretty organic conversation, in my opinion, and one which I never actually formally introduced the guest. So apologies for that, but her name is Sophie Walters. And I'm very lucky that I got to meet her because since then we've actually become pretty good friends in real life. And she's back living in Vancouver right now, pursuing her PhD. So what up, Sophie? I finally released it. And to play us in, she provided a song. It's called Tambores by La Sexta Vocal. They are a ska band who perform in Zoku, which is the only non-Mayan indigenous language spoken in Chiapas. So hopefully enjoy the song, enjoy the episode. And be sure to enjoy your life. That's what Ska's all about. Yeah, I wish you 
group that I work with called La Epoca, La Epoca del Baldillo, which is like the, I don't know how you say Baldillo. It's like, uh, I don't know, like the time of slavery, kind of. Right. Yeah, I read that, or I was actually told this, that slavery happened here in kind of a different way, that there was much less importation of African slaves and that it was more the indigenous people who were enslaved. All over the Americas, or all over Central and South America. Right. So was there much of an Atlantic African slave trade? Because there's certainly like a black population here, but I'm wondering where they, you know, may have came from. Um, I think a lot of them were like escaped slaves from different groups from like Haiti and the Caribbean and different areas. Um, no, there wasn't really like an African slave trade. No. In the, no, it was like other like groups or like small groups that would come and kind of establish themselves on the coasts. Mm-hmm. Like there's more like Afro-Mexican populations in Guerrero, Veracruz. Chacawa. Yeah. Chikawa, the lagoon I was staying at, very much so. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's not, like, super common. More, I guess more in, like, Honduras and other parts of Central America. They're, they're like, larger African mestizo populations. Mm. But I'm, I don't really know where where those groups came from right. or and not what many, that story was. And not many in San Cristobal or, I guess... No, although... Oh, my God. So... The first year I got here, I was a volunteer at this government center that works on um, language, indigenous languages, art, and culture. And one of the women, one of the women that I worked with there, taught me how to like do some video editing and stuff. She's this really amazing, um, how do you say, cineasta, like film, film producer, filmmaker. Okay. Yeah. Um, from Chenaldo, it's like a Tzotzil Mayan community that's like maybe an hour from here. And she was working there. She was super sweet. She did like a master's in film in Chile and like worked. She did a de- she did a degree in communications in Tuxla and worked on like the lo- like Chiapas public television channel. And she did like um, translations of the news into Tzotzil. Right. And then they would like transmit that on the like public broadcasting here, like on the TV and on the radio. So she got kind of like a little bit like famous in her community. I did this interview with her for a book chapter I'm writing. And there are these stories from the community that she's from, Chenalo. And basically her grandmother used to tell them all these stories about these like super tall, dark people that lived in caves around the communities that like after colonialism started would start would like come and like live on the outskirts of the communities and come in and steal chickens and supposedly sometimes steal children Uh. and so so supposedly the and they thought that they were like spirits or something because they would only see them at night and they would be like marauded off in the caves in the hills above these villages and supposedly that the, they were like escaped slaves that would like run up into the mountains and like look for shelter and like try to survive how they could. But a lot of the people from the communities like thought that they were like spirits that like could only come out at night. So she said that like when her grandmother first came to San Cristobal she saw like a black person just like walking around town. She was like, oh my God, the spirits here can just walk around during the day. This is crazy. What are they doing? Wow. But so yeah, there wasn't really a lot of 
Atlantic slave trade in Latin mm-hmm. America whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And when the yeah, when the Spanish came, they were mostly interested in using the people that were here for work and yeah, a ready-made supply yeah. of people to exploit sadly. Yeah, and colonialists. So yeah, well, it says a lot that the the Africans were greeted as mountain spirits yeah (laughs) you know and not as you know monstrous ogres or something although it sounds like you know the stealing children thing yeah there's maybe a bit of both going on yeah Yeah. i mean i think there was a lot of fear going on during a few centuries there well right i mean up until the 90s here you know that's why Zapatismo is so special here but um the colonialism here in particular in chiapas was like controlled by very few families you know like it was maybe i don't know a few dozen families that like owned most of the land throughout the state and like as the centuries went on they kind of like started getting smaller and smaller but um like in the village where i did my field work for my master's they kicked the Spanish family out that, like, built the hacienda there in, you know, the 1700s. What's an, as, what's an hacienda? An hacienda is, like, when... It, it's like a plantation that, like, Spanish people, usually Spanish families, would have um, in Mexico. Right. But, so... And they were kicked off that by the, I guess... So, okay, so during colonialism, all of these families set up these plantations all over Chiapas, right, for lots of different crops, Um, corn, sugarcane, beans, lots of different stuff. And on the coast, more like mangoes and tropical stuff. Throughout, you know, the centuries, these same families kind of maintain their power. And it's the same in San Cristobal. It's like a lot of the families that have their houses like on the walking street on Guadalupe, are like the same, they're like supposedly descendants of like the same came bloodline. in the 1600s, right? Because San Cristóbal was founded in like 1528, supposedly. March 31st, 1528. Very I good. I saw it recently. Was there much of an indigenous community here beforehand or was it really a colonial town from the beginning? No, there there were tons of indigenous groups here, and there was tons of like trade between the different indigenous groups. At some point, uh, I think most of the Mayan groups around here were kind of like subjugated by the like Nahuatl-speaking groups from like Mexico City, right? Like the like the Aztecs and the Mexicas and all those groups, but. So they would, like, pay tribute to them. And then so, like, the golden age of the Maya is before that, right? But I think during, I think by the time the Spaniards got here, um, there was tons of trade and, like, stuff going on between different ethnicities here. There were definitely lots of groups. And, And this area specifically, I think, was, like, the intersection between several different groups, right? Like, more to the east, kind of, we have the Tzeltales, which is one Mayan group. And then more towards like Chamula on the other side, Chamula and the I guess the north side of town, you have Chamula, Tinacantan, like more Tzotzil groups, and that that like border kind of like continues towards Palenque, right? It's really interesting how there's so many different Mayan groups in Chiapas too, right? Like they, I think there was a lot of like trade and like language interaction and kind of like borrowing between these different groups 
but they did maintain like different languages and cultures like in relatively small groups like the the language i work with now is like 55,000 speakers but um you know and a lot of linguists postulate that it's like a creole language of Tzeltal and Chuh, which are kind of like two different neighboring Mayan languages. But um, yeah, I think there's been like constant intercultural contact here from pre-colonial to post-colonial times. Mm. Um, But it's really striking how those few Spanish families maintained so much power for centuries. And in 1994, is when many different indigenous communities kicked the Spanish families off of their haciendas and appropriated all of their lands, right? So that that's like a big piece of like why that was so important to people here. Yeah, the Zapatista sub- movement. The Zapatista movement, right. Is because they were subjugated to the same families that had been, you know, it's essentially indentured servitude, right? Like they would charge them rent to like have their own little like plot of corn and then they would work on their lands, and then that would pay for the rent for their own plot of corn. So, right. I've I, I recently listened to a podcast on the post Civil War South, how basically they immediately just tried to reinstitute slavery under just a new economic system. The same thing, indentured servitude. You will live here, yeah. but you have to pay rent, and that rent is going to be so high that you're basically a slave. You know, and you have to buy your own food now, which under slavery, they would provide that food. So it was basically replicating the identical conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And for the people in power, it was like so profitable and, you know, they really clutched to it. Right. That's yeah. why like 1994 is pretty late for these families to be kicked Absolutely. off of these lands, right? Especially when you compare it to like the Civil War in the United States, yeah. you know, 94. I was born in 92. I'm sure a lot of our listeners were born a lot before that, you know? Yeah. 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 But, um, oh, one interesting thing about the American Civil War is like a lot of Confederates fled to different parts of Latin America. And there's like this town, I think in Brazil, I don't, I don't know what it's called, but it's like this town entirely of... Like the and uh, not the ancestors, the descendants of um, Confederate soldiers. Confederates who like established themselves in Brazil and like wanted to like start a new Confederate state there. And they still have like festivals every year where they dress up in like Confederate dress and like fly the flag. It's terrible. But um, what is it with white supremacists and fleeing to South America when shit goes bad? I don't know. You know, the rat line, all the Nazis that ended yeah. up there. You know? Oh my God. There's so many like good lines of um, Latin American literature about like Nazis fleeing to South America. Or, oh, did you see that series, um, Frontera Verde, uh, Green Border? Oh, yes. Yeah, I did watch it. Yeah, yeah. Um, does yeah. it does it does it end up having some sort of tie in with with former Nazis? I don't oh, know if yeah. I I don't know oh, if I ever yeah. finished the series. Now I'm gonna have to pick it back up. Yeah, it's, it's like on Netflix non- for anyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like Nazis doing like fucked up human experimentation Whoa. on like groups in the Amazon. And... Have you heard about the Colonial Dignidad in Chile under the Pinochet regime? So no. basically there was a former Hitler youth guy who ended up, actually he was pretty young when World War II ended, but he ended up getting kicked out of Germany because he'd founded like this sort of Baptist pedophile cult basically. And he got driven out of Germany, post-war Germany. 
and ended up in uh, in Chile, where he decided to start this sort of German Puritan community there. Oh, I have heard right. about this. And the and the regime, the Pinochet regime, ended up using his ministry as like a black site for oh, torturing. There's a documentary about this, right? Absolutely, and a movie with Emma Watson. Apparently, oh I, wow, I, I haven't that. seen, but it's it's out there for anyone who wants it. Um, but yeah, a really yeah a really fucked up story about how not only white supremacists were allowed to enter South America, but were given positions of of consequence by these regimes that happened in like the sixties and seventies, yeah. back back by the United States mostly. Yeah, in Argentina too, right? Yes, exactly. I had no idea. Like I I kind of went down the rabbit hole when I I worked with this guy from Guatemala, who came to Vancouver in the 90s as a refugee because he worked for like some sort of rebel newspaper and he ended up getting warned by his friends that hey they're coming for you and your wife you have to leave now and he ended up moving to Vancouver where I met him where I worked as a gardener and uh, he was my boss and eventually he uh, he opened up and he told me about his experiences in Guatemala and rep- uh, recommended a book called Bitter Fruit which is all about the American banana company or the American Fruit Corporation. United Fruit Company. The United Fruit Company. Yeah. And from there, because I was must have been like 23 at that time, it just all started to unravel. Like, oh my God, this happened in Guatemala. Yeah. This happened in Chile. This happened in Brazil. In Argentina. Guatemala, it was particularly brutal because then there, there were like, you know, because of all the political turmoil later, there was like 35 years of civil war too, so. Yeah. That's my next stop, by the yeah. way. <laughs> Going there next. And, um, yeah, and you no. Know, despite he speaks, he speaks very, very fondly and kind of sadly about the fact that he had to leave. So, I'm really looking forward to going to Antigua, which he always recommended to me, and getting some some mangoes off the street. Nice. <laughs> nice. To sort of tie this back into the sort of language aspect of it, because one thing I've heard about Chiapas is that there's it's a stronghold for places, uh, whole towns and villages that still speak the indigenous language. Um, how many languages are actively spoken here? Do you have any ideas to... Yeah, so um, it's funny because I just saw like a post by Celani, which is the Centro Estatal de Lenguas, Arte y Literatura Indígena, the place I was telling you about that I volunteered at when I first got here. It's like a volunteer linguist. It's the um, State Center of Indigenous Language, Art, and Culture, and sometimes music too. But they just, uh, so the 21st of February every year is International Mother Tongue Day. So they always do like a big event and they've been posting a bunch of stuff on Facebook. And it's interesting because the year that I started working there, they like put out these little manuals about different languages in Chiapas. And they listed 12 different languages as the indigenous languages spoken in Chiapas. And then they just posted this this year, and it has 14 languages listed. And I think 13 of them are Mayan languages, and one is non-Mayan, which is Soke. And it's more in, like, the, I think in the linguistic family of, like, different Oaxacan languages. It's, like, kind of in the north of Chiapas. It's spoken around the volcano Chichonan, which also exploded in the 80s and has all kinds of crazy stories about that, too. But so they, they're now saying that there are 14 different languages spoken in Chiapas. And so there's Soke, which is the only non-Mayan one. And then there's Tzeltan, Tzotzil, Chol, Tojalabal, Hakalteco, Katok. No, 
katok. Akateko, mocho, kanjobal, chuj, kachikel, lakandon, mam. So, a lot of different linguistic groups here. The two most widely spoken languages are Tzeltal and Tzotzil. Those are the ones you mostly hear in San Cristobal. They both have about half a million speakers. And then after that, the most common one is Chol, which is spoken more around Palenque. Um, and then after that, Tojalabal, which only has 55,000 speakers. That's the language that I worked with. But it was really cool being a volunteer at this language center because they would essentially just like put me on different projects, like working on different languages and like editing videos or shooting or helping with like a little book. Um, and I was just like shocked at the linguistic diversity here, you know, especially being from like, I'm from Portland, Oregon, so from a relatively monolingual white place, you know, just coming to a place where there are 14 different languages spoken only in this state is just like mind boggling, you know. So, you know, that allows for a lot of different cultural diversity and beauty as well. And that's kind of what made me really fall in love with Chiapas. And I love San Cristobal and my time here has been really amazing. But honestly, the first time I came here, I didn't really fall in love with San Cristobal. I think it was until later that I started spending more time in communities and I made really amazing like friendships and connections and families just started like opening up their doors to me completely and I started living with them that I kind of really more started to fall in love with this place. Yeah. For those of you who have never been to San Cristobal, it's kind of a uh, a relatively large, it, you know, it's a city. It's, it's Is it the capital of Chiapas? No, no, no. no. Tuxla is the Tuxla capital. Tuxla is. Okay, got you. But it's it's a very, you know, it's, it's called a city, but it fe- there's no skyscrapers really here. No. It's all smaller buildings in a bit of a valley surrounded by mountains on all sides. So in terms of like potential to discover, you know, it's surrounded with all these different little communities that you can go in. Chamula in particular is one that I'm hopefully going to go to on Tuesday. And I've read that in Chamula, people don't even regularly speak Spanish. They speak their own indigenous language. Am I understanding that right? Yeah. So yeah. in Chamula, they speak Tzotzin. It's one of the Mayan languages that I mentioned. Um and yeah, I mean, you hear it a lot in San Cristobal and as well, and in a lot of different communities. Like, you go to any indigenous community in Chiapas, and you're mostly going to be hearing people who are speaking their first language. Kids, you know, supposedly have access to bilingual education, although the public education system here has a lot of um, problems. They have a lot of really progressive ideals, kind of. Uh, worked into their objectives but I don't know how much that is really played out like for example in the in Mexico's constitution it says that um, indigenous communities have the right to access bilingual education so teacher public education with teachers speaking their language however it's so poorly managed and corrupt that They'll end up sending bilingual teachers, quote unquote, bilingual teachers to different communities that don't even speak that language. So they'll send a Tzeltal speaker to a Tzotzil community, or they'll mix up the languages. So that's kind of like a common trope about how it's not really well managed. But yeah, so anyway, you you do go to the communities around uh, San Cristobal, and you'll definitely hear lots of different languages. 
Um, it, there's kind of been this resurgence in people kind of having cultural pride around speaking those languages since the Zapatista revolution as well. You know, before that it was very, it was seen, it was very stigmatized and looked down upon for these people to be speaking their language, especially in San Cristobal, which for so long, um, was established as a very like colonial place controlled by few families and, there was even a policy, kind of like an unspoken law, that up until 94, and you know, and if you were like indigenous, you should probably be on. There's like a, a, a few river, rivers that go around San Cristobal and that kind of cut off the center. And it was said that, like, if you were an indigenous person, you should be on the other side of the river by nightfall, you know. So mm. there were like very stringent social policies and the the ability of the the few in power to hold their power was strong here for many centuries so we've kind of flirted around the issue for a little while but maybe let's dive into the zapatista movement a little bit and sort of discuss you know was there a particular catalyst that really kicked it off because it seems like it's been an unprecedented and important movement that has significantly changed the lives of many people living in Chiapas. So I'm wondering, was there a particular flashpoint which which kicked it all off? Mm-hmm. Signing of NATO in 1994, that same day that they signed the papers. The Zapatistas had been organizing before that because they knew that this was going to happen. But I think the day that it was signed, um, they like did a big press release declaring their opposition to it and declaring war on the neoliberal states of Mexico, U.S. and Canada, I think is what they said. The, right. I, I might be misquoting. but um, Well, there's a lot of Canadian mining corporations in Central and South America, which are no friends to the indigenous people here. So that would be yeah. understandable. Absolutely not. But you know, San Cristobal also has a long history of kind of um, cultural resistance and different resistance movements, right? Like San Cristobal de las Casas is named San Cristobal because of Fray Bartolomé de las Casas, who was a Franciscan monk who came over in the 16th century. And after traveling around Chiapas, I think for 20 years, um, and seeing how poorly, because the Spanish crown and church had already outlawed slavery by that point. And so he came and he saw how poorly the indigenous people were treated here. And he went back to Spain and was like, what the fuck, guys? Everyone is fucking up. Like, we need to figure this out. So that's when, like, he passed all of these laws that supposedly were going to protect indigenous people more. And then they sent other people over to kind of regulate all this new, um, all these new laws. And they were called, like, Las Nuevas Leyes de Buen Gobierno or something like New laws of good government, I think. So when the Spanish came, like, the Chamulas were waiting for them with all of these kind of, like, well, so, so the stories say the myths that Chamulas were waiting for them with all of these, like, giant cauldrons of boiling water and lime in them to burn them. And so the story of, you know, cultural resistance and kind of... Um, fighting back for what was theirs in Chiapas has been since the Spanish got here. But, um, you know, largely the Spanish won and took control of everything and set up a series of plantations all over Chiapas. 
and subjugated the indigenous people. So in 1994, Subcomandante Marcos, the leader of the Zapatista movement, um, had been doing a quite a bit of organizing with different indigenous communities before that. They declare war on NATO and basically enter into a very violent conflict with the Spanish military here in San Cristobal and in different areas of Chiapas. And one of the bloodiest parts of this is that the military and the government would essentially do all this organizing of paramilitaries who would kind of pretend to be on one side of the other and then would kind of like create all this confusion and conflict. And essentially there were these massacres, like in the massacre of Acteal, I think, I don't know how many people are, but like something like 80 people were massacred and it was like women and children too. I really don't know how many people, please don't quote me on that. But the Zapatista movement is really important here and many different communities kind of were able to throw out those same Spanish families and take back the lands and create kind of communal cornfields essentially to survive off of, um, which in the case of the community where I was living, Saltillo, um they got quite a bit of land you know like i i have kind of like an aerial map in my thesis but you know these these families had acquired huge estates that when some of these communities got them back like really benefited them but it's really interesting because almost none of them use so it's like most of these communities where they have these haciendas that you go to it's like there's a little village and there's all these small houses where everyone lives. And then there's kind of this old abandoned mansion where they kicked out the Spanish family, right? And in the, in the village where, like, my um, compadres, my, my godson's parents <laughs> live, like, where my friends are. Um, they have, like, this huge indoor pool and these, like, beautiful old adobe buildings of, like, essentially this mansion, right? But none of the communities want to, like, use any of those spaces because they're all essentially just, like, these huge symbols of darkness and slavery and horrible, horrible things that happen to their their communities for so many years. But they're in these mansions, so so they're all in complete, like, disarray or, like, people take, like, tiles or different, like, supplies and they're completely overgrown. People graze their cows and their sheep through them. So they're just like overgrown kind of like these ghost mansions, just like completely adjacent to like so many different indigenous communities. And the one next to the village has this like beautiful indoor pool that kind of had like this huge greenhouse mm. type thing built around it and all these bougainvilleas. And it's just gorgeous, but like they're just completely uninterested in using any of it except for the chapel. So they built a chapel in that community, I think in 1902 or something. And they still use that for like a bunch of different um, local cultural celebrations. But um, the Zapatista movement was really important for a lot of different indigenous communities here. And not only did it mark the opportunity and kind of taking back of a lot of different communal lands, but also a big cultural shift and a big, um, I don't know, in Spanish you say conscientización, like people gained a lot of consciousness around the importance of different cultures, right? Because before that, I mean, white supremacy, right? right. I mean, 
So from then, um, all of these different kind of government institutions, for instance, like Selene, the center where I worked at, opened. You know, there, there are a lot of like critiques of institutions like Selene. A lot of the people who are involved in like the Zapatista resistance movement and a lot of the culture resistance um, in these different groups, like artists, like poets, for instance, um, speak out about how the government used the founding of these centers kind of as like a band-aid for saying, okay, well now we have the official state center of indigenous languages, so now we support indigenous languages, right? So there are a lot of critiques of it, but um, there's an insane amount of linguistic diversity here, and it was something that I didn't even know about Chiapas before I came, and I studied linguistics, so I was very impressed when I arrived. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So maybe we could talk a little bit about how you first got inspired to enter this field because anthropology is already pretty specific. Linguistic anthropology is probably one of the most specific branches of anthropology. So I, I can't help but feel like people don't end up there by accident. So maybe we could talk about how you ended up there. Yeah. When I was in high school, I was angsty like many teenagers. And I really wanted to <laughs> escape my environment. So I started like looking up all these like fancy private schools. And I mean, my mom's a public school teacher. My parents are divorced. I'm not from like a wealthy family. But I started looking up all these schools and like online and like sending out for all these packets that like would arrive at my doorstep about these like $50,000 a year horseback riding schools and things. And my mom was like, what the fuck are you thinking? Like, I don't know. Who do you think we are? You know? Um, but then I like found out some program about um, being an exchange student. And I was like, Mom, can I be an exchange student? She was like, yeah, that's a great idea. So I was an exchange student in Spain for my junior year of high school, which is second to last, I don't know, 11th grade in Canada. And I was in this amazing town in Spain, in a town called Cadiz, in the south of Spain, in Andalusia. Um, and it was this beautiful, super historic town. And it's actually the town that Christopher Columbus set sail from. Then he came to the Americas. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> so maybe a couple statues yeah. <laughs> need to get torn down, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But it's this amazing historic town in the south of Spain. Um, and anyway, when I was an exchange student there, I felt like I was super conscious of like my language acquisition process. Because I would go to school every day, and I was in high school, and I would just like listen to Spanish all day in all these classes, and I would just be like, I don't understand anything, I don't understand anything, what the fuck are they talking about? I was taking like Greek and Latin in Spanish, I was like, what the fuck, what the fuck? And then after like so many days of just not understanding anything, one day it just like clicked, and I just understood almost everything, and it was just crazy. Like, So having this like really intense language acquisition process that just felt like so black and white from one day to the next just got me really interested in like how we are able to learn a language at all what languages are what the sciences of languages is are <laughs> um but so i was like oh i want to study linguistics in college and i don't think i even really knew what linguistics was so much but so I decided to study linguistics at UBC and, um, 
you know, you learn what linguistics is. It's syntax and phonology and phonetics and pragmatics and et cetera, right? So it's the scientific study of language and, you know, how we use sounds to construct different words and create meaning. And as I studied linguistics, I was like, wow, this is so much more technical than I thought it would be. And I found myself continuously more interested in the intersection between language and culture, language and society. So in that, I took a sociolinguistics course at UBC and I started working as a research assistant there in the, I don't know what it's called now, Speech in Context, Speak On Lab with Dr. Molly Babel at UBC. And we did like sociolinguistics experiments. Um, and it was <clears throat> mostly about the perception of different kinds of voices. So we were looking at attractiveness and typicality and how that kind of affects imitation. So if we find a voice attractive or unattractive or normal or abnormal, if we're more or less likely to imitate that voice. So we would do different kind of perception tasks and essentially found out like, yes, People imitate attractive voices, but they also imitate abnormal or irregular voices. So if you have a really weird voice and you're talking to somebody, people are going to be more likely to imitate that too. Yeah, I've noticed that traveling as well. Like, And it's also, especially in Spain or well, in a Spanish-speaking country, you might be in a situation where you're switching between Spanish and English, Spanish and English. And then when you come back to English, sometimes you're talking with like a little Spanish accent, yeah. which gets pointed out and is incredibly cringy when you realize what you're yeah. doing. But it's a very natural social phenomenon. And maybe we could explain sort of, you know, why does that happen? Because I think at some point in our lives, most people have encountered that situation where people end up imitating an accent or a manner of speaking. Totally. In linguistics, we call it communication accommodation theory. And it's, it's essentially the idea that when we come into a linguistic interaction with someone, we're going to feel some way about them. And we're going to, you know, basically have a reaction that's going to make us alter the way we want to portray our identity because of how we judge them, right? So this idea says that if we like someone or we like or we feel some kind of connection with someone, we're more likely to imitate them. If we feel kind of neutral, we might just maintain our own dialect or idiolect. And if we dislike someone, we're likely to, or want to like establish our identity more because we have some kind of conflict or something, we're likely to like diverge. And let's say like I have an American accent and you have a Canadian accent and I for some reason hate Canadians, I might make my accent more American like talking to you as a Canadian, right? So in linguistics, we definitely have like a lot of theories, uh, sociolinguistic theories about like how we interact within these uh, interlinguistic spaces or interdialectical spaces. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it really just draws into focus how much of life is kind of a performance, you know? I think we've all experienced how we, we're different people around different people. Like you're going to act in a very different way depending on the sort of, you know, are you with your family? Are you with your friends? What group of friends? Are you with your professor? You know, we all contain within ourselves subtle variations of ourselves. Which one is real? Is any of them real? Yeah, human identity is a very interesting subject. I think language is a very good way of understanding how the human mind operates. So... 
Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like language in general in Mexico is such a beautiful encapsulation of kind of this history that we've been talking about, right? So Octavio Paz, kind of like an important writer here, talks about how Mexico is... <clears throat> like the Mexicans are essentially the children of La Malinche and Hernán Cortés, right? Hernán Cortés, the Spanish conquistador, and La Malinche, which I don't know if you know the story of La Malinche at all, but she was an indigenous translator who I think... She was originally Mayan and then like sold by her family to Nahuatl-speaking people. But she spoke like a bunch of different languages from Mexico. In Mexico currently, I think 63 different languages are spoken, by the way. But there were a lot more back then, right? So she was like already kind of like language boss. And when the colonizers came over, they essentially met her and Hernan Cortes like fell in love with her and they had a relationship. So there's kind of this trope about Mexico that like our mother is La Maninche and our father is Hernan Cortes. And that's what Octavio Paz talks about in some of his books about Mexican identity. There's one in particular called The Labyrinth of Solitude that talks about kind of like the Mexican identity, according to him, right? A lot of people find a lot of issues with the book, but I think it has a lot of good ideas. Right. I think that's a good door for us to jump through into talking about how was the colonization of Latin America different from, you know, northern North America? You know, this when the Spaniards got here, they didn't just kill everybody. They were interested in making them all Catholic and turning them into a labor force and sack, ransacking all of the gold and silver and resources from the Americas that they could for the Spanish Catholic Church. Unlike the British, they didn't just immediately kill everybody. Although because of disease and smallpox and everything, different diseases that um, were brought over from Europe, supposedly 80% of the indigenous population of the Americas in total was taken out, um, you know, after the 16th century. So there was, there was a huge decrease in population, but there wasn't like this pointed effort to like exterminate all of the indigenous people, right? So because of that, there was a lot more mestizaje or like mixing of Spanish and indigenous groups um, that completely changed cultures in many different ways. And so, you know, that same story of La Malinche and Hernán Cortés is a story that's repeated all over Latin America. And that's why Latin America looks so different than the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, I, my last interview I did was uh, about Santa Muerte, actually, which I think is also kind of emblematic of this this colliding of Catholicism and indigenous folk religion with like the Aztec and Mayan, like particularly female gods of death and how that sort of collided and became this modern movement. Um, I think that's a really beautiful example of cultural resistance, too. It's like if we've been talking about all these different cultural resistance movements, you know, it's like that that's what that's one of the beautiful things in Latin America, right? Is because Catholicism came over and it was brutal, right? You had to be Catholic or you died. So they were like, okay, we're Catholic now, but we're also gonna like incorporate all these other gods. Oh, you have saints? Oh, this is now the saint of the rain. This is now the saint of the jungle. This is now, you know, so it's like 
they kind of had this really clever and beautiful way of saying like, okay, we're subjugated in Catholicism now, but we're going to like incorporate a lot of our own beliefs. And if you go to Chumula, the town that we were talking about earlier, um, it's about half an hour from San Cristobal, you can really see this, right? So you go to the church and you're not allowed to take any pictures inside of the church because it's like a sacred space. And I think, you know, supposedly people there believe that like a, can- a picture will steal your, your soul or whatever too. But I think it's just a way to like control what's going on uh, in the church because everyone from Tumula has Facebook, right? And are putting up right. selfies all the time. It's not like... Oh, really? You know, I mean, no. Yeah, totally. So it's, like, I mean, it's quite developed as well. Oh, yeah. Okay, way. so you go to the church and it's like these families are inside and yes, they're sacrificing chickens and yes, they're drinking Coca-Cola and burping to purify their souls and drinking posh, which is the local corn liquor. But they're also teenagers sitting there with them, scrolling through their Facebook feeds. I mean, I mean, that's what, you know, it's like people have these such like romanticized notions of what indigenous people are. But I mean, like, we're all living in this modern world, right? We're all in this moment. They're not living in some other century. So, you know, I think these intersections of like technology and culture and kind of like mass globalized culture mixed with like highly particular local cultural beliefs are just super interesting and complex but you know these people are not at all like isolated from the rest of the world you know yeah this this ties in really well with a a documentary you told me to watch right before doing this interview called uh, schooling the world which is on filmsforaction.com if anyone's interested in viewing it. But to summarize it, it's basically a critique of the global schooling system and how it's sort of created this homogenized megaculture, just copy-pasting American urban sort of technological values all over the world. Um, And because you suggested it to me, I thought maybe we could dive into your sort of read on it. Uh, what are what are some of the dangers of having the entire world taught in one way? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not against children having an education all over the world. You know, I just want to say that right off the bat. I think children everywhere have the right to education, and it's a fundamental human right. However, there's been this imposition of a particular kind of education that's designed for a particular kind of society that's just been poorly applied to other societies all over the world, like you were saying, kind of copy and paste, right? And I think their first example in that film is in Ladka in in India, right? So, you know, not... Yes, everyone is involved in this globalized world, and mostly people are not isolated. Very few cultures are like really isolated in the world at this point. But at the same time, there are varying degrees of that, and we exist in very different spaces, and spaces that have very different needs. So, I mean, in that film, I will admit that they do show like a somewhat romanticized vision of like you know essentially campesinos uh how do you say like farmers in rural india who like harvest their wheat and it shows them with like their beads and all this meditating and everything but you know their argument is that they have this tradition of agriculture that these families have been practicing for millennia 
but because of government regulations, they have to send their children to school. So they send their children to school, and they're these kind of, you know, there's all these images of, like, the children marching in the yard and all, like, reciting things in kind of, like, a militaristic-type way together. And basically the thesis of this film is that, like, yes, education is good, but, like, we need an education... We need, like, specialized education for people within their context, right? So it's, like, children... It shows the trajectory of these children who essentially are forced to, like, leave these agricultural spaces, go live and study at these schools, and end up in these slums in Mumbai selling cell phone parts because they have to, you know... Because that's what they're taught that they have to do to survive, right? They're being educated for the... Western capitalist society, yeah. which is yeah. kind of the goal of education a lot, even in North America, was to right. create people to go to factories and sort of be socialized around bells. Yeah. Produce and yeah. sell things and make money. Whereas, like, from, you know, a lot of these people are from communities and villages that are completely auto sustainable, right? So there's not even really this, like, huge need to go do that but it's kind of just like being incorporated into this globalized market and by That's, creating a sense of shame around yeah. their traditional life ways like this is a continuation of like social evolutionary theory that like you are at this point of development and if you continue going to school and listening to us you will end up like new york which is yeah. the pinnacle of human development is fucking western urban consumer culture which is Anyone who's traveled will tell you is not the, the pinnacle of human achievement. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, that's what the world needs. More strip malls, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and I mean, you know, those same processes. So we watched this film in this class that I was in, and, and it really impacted me. And, and I started traveling more, and I started to see... Um, People speaking in all these different languages all over Latin America, you know, and I, I did this big trip from Mexico through Central and South America, kind of by land, taking buses from, from one place to the next. And I was just astounded at the linguistic diversity of the Americas and how I was never taught about this as a kid and, you know, all these different cultures that I just had no idea existed. Um, and it was just shocking and beautiful to me and you know i think i think in some ways there are still there is a lot of stigma stigmatism still around a lot of different indigenous languages in chiapas but um there are a lot of really beautiful movements and poets and artists and writers and musicians who are producing a ton of content in a lot of these languages now and i think that um you know it's like we said, none of these cultures are, like, living in some other century. Like, we're all here in this moment now. Like, all of these same medios sociales. Like, social media and all these kind of technological tools that have been kind of, like, this big force of globalization and homogenization can also be tools that are used to like celebrate our diversity and linguistic and cultural diversity and produce more content, right? So I don't, you know, there's a huge gap in access to these tools, you know, like good internet or like ways to film stuff, but everyone has a cell phone now, you know, and people are doing some really amazing projects. And I think that like, 
there's no reason why these community we ha- anyone has to think of these communities as living in some other century and can't use the same tools that we use in cities or urban spaces or in other cultures or in dominant languages. That's one of the ideas from the film, right? Is that they're kind of like these dominant colonizing languages that kind of take over and exterminate other minority languages. And there's really no ways, no reason why minority languages can't also make a ton of amazing content. You know, like there's a telenovela, like a, how do you say, a telenovela in English, like mm. a no telenovela. <laughs> telenovela. No but there's a telenovela in Yucatec Mayan, for example, and I don't know. So I think <clears throat> kind of bridging that technological gap for a lot of these cultures and languages can do a lot for creating more awareness and just kind of inspiring young people to get back into it, right? Like, you know, if we're on TikTok and YouTube and Facebook and all of these different um, ways of interacting that are all telling us to be the same, it's like there's no reason why we can't use those same tools to kind of like celebrate this diversity. So that's kind of my shtick in in my research is I'm interested in digital storytelling and working with minority languages, especially working with um, elders and doing different kind of narrative projects. But I'm really interested in like getting youth back involved in creating content in these languages too. And San Cristobal is a really amazing place for that. There's a graduate institute, institute here called CSS um, that has one of the only Mesoamerican linguistic programs, like PhD and masters. And to get into the program, you have to speak an indigenous language. Um, so it's a really cool program and it's educated a lot of different um, linguists in a lot of the different languages of Chiapas. So here there's a really cool consciousness about languages and kind of intercultural life in general, but it's something that's just so much more accepted in everyday life, you know? Like you walk around San Cristobal, you see people from all over the world, you see people speaking different indigenous languages. There's a fact of life is that here we are with all of these languages all on top of one another. So that's something that I really like about San Cristobal. And I feel like it's really different about kind of like the layout of different Canadian and American cities, right? Because I feel like it's so much more segregated. Things in other parts of Mexico especially are super segregated too. But San Cristobal is kind of small, like you were saying. You know, mm-hmm. it's like 200,000 people. There's no Chinatown, you know. There's no <laughs> Chinatown. And it's just this little valley. Like there's really nowhere else to go. So it's just like everybody's all on top of and these layers all on top of one another and it's pretty cool Mm -hmm. i guess tying it to san cristobal specifically now which is where you've been working at this nonprofit, specifically working with kids but to take a sort of broader view what are some of the big social issues in san cristobal today that people contend with well there are quite a few i mean there are a lot of health issues because there's not good you know, civil infrastructure here, The most of the water sources are super contaminated. So, you know, even people even get sick from just brushing their teeth and spitting out the right. water because there's poop in the water because yeah. there's no drainage system here whatsoever. Like there's no 
there's no uh what's it called like water plant right treatment plant it all just go all of the raw sewage just goes straight into the river yeah and in through a tunnel that they built i think in the 80s because before that it was a closed watershed they built a tunnel um through the mountains like towards tuxla and we actually went on a field trip to the farms that are on the other side and the so the river goes out this tunnel with like all of the raw sewage dumped into it from san cristobal and then it's kind of like um led into all these little canals and all these farms that are on the other side and they use all the raw sewage to water all of their crops and then they sell all the crops in the markets here doesn't poop have some sort of nutritional value for plants it does it no yeah super nitrogen rich and in a lot of countries in the world they do use like black water sewage raw sewage and they treat it and you can make really but you have to treat it right right so they're not doing that here no no they're not um so there's huge health problems essentially because of the poor infrastructure here because of zero infrastructure in terms of wastewater management, right? Right. Um, so that definitely contributes to like wider social inequity that has essentially carried over from colonialism, right? So it's a very poor place. Um, Chiapas is one of the poorest states in Mexico. I think it usually is kind of first or second with mm-hmm. Oaxaca. Yeah. Um, but so when you get here, you know, you see all these beautiful colonial walking streets and plazas and gazebos and cathedrals, and it's this very picturesque town. But then as you start to walk around a little bit more, you notice tons of people selling like local handicrafts and artisan stuff on the street. A lot of them children. And... Um, essentially there are tons of impoverished people here who their kids have to work to get by. Um, a lot of them are from like surrounding villages. A lot of people are displaced because of conflicts in villages. Um, there's a big conflict, for instance, in the past few years, um, just outside of San Cristobal. And there's essentially been like thousands of displaced people from that. And so this is like a, a, a violent conflict? Yeah, and that conflict is especially interesting because essentially like the federal and state government sent these cartographers to like deline- delineate the borders between these municipalities and they just like completely fucked it up supposedly because they didn't want to get into the river and the river was like the natural border so they just like drew a straight line instead. So there's all this territory that was disputed for a long time, for I think like 60, 70 years now. And tons of people have been killed over this, right? Like people, people are in dire conditions here. So like having the access to a little bit of land is really important, you know. A lot of people in Mexico survive off of the milpa or the cornfield, right? Which is kind of the like... Uh, Michael Pollan calls it the sacred trinity of corn, beans, and squash. So that makes up for a huge amount of the diet um, of a lot of different groups in Mexico. But um, anyway, so there are all these different marginalized groups who live around the outside in villages outside of San Cristobal. And a lot of them come into San Cristobal to try to make a little bit of money. And so you see lots of families with kids working on the street or kids working alone. 
And the organization that I work at um, specifically works with kids, teens, and young adults and kind of offers a space where they can come and participate in workshops or learn different skills in order to work in restaurants or bakeries um, and not be essentially selling things on the street. So every year in January and February, they go out and invite different kids who are working on the street to enroll in their program. And they offer workshops from like nine to two every day. And they give the kids like a monthly stipend to make up for the money that they're not making working on the streets. And they give and they have classes and how to use a computer, English. Some of them go to night school. So they give them help with their homework and tutoring. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty cool program right now. They have almost no funding. Uh, we're like, our enrollment is where we were enrolling all week and we're starting next week and we had like $10 left in our account to like make the lent- the breakfasts for everybody. Cause we give breakfast to the kids when they come. Cause a lot of them, um, have a lot of food insecurity as well. Um, yeah, so it's a great organization to donate to. It's called Chantik Tach Tachinkutik. Maybe we can do a little bit of a little link or something to our website. But, um, yeah, you know, San Cristobal is a really beautiful town and lots of people come and there's a whole expat or what I like to call migrant community here um, of Americans and Canadians and people from all over Europe, especially from all over Europe. But, you know, there's there's a lot of hardship and poverty here as well. And people kind of, people come and they see how beautiful it is and they see all the different cultures and they're like, oh my God, it's so cheap. But, you know, there's a pretty dark side behind that too, you know. I mean, Mexico is one of the biggest destinations for like, pedophilia tourism in the world and Chiapas is as well um there's like known child brothels here especially in Cancun as well um so people are really in desperate desperate situations I took I did a master's here and in one of the classes I took was called Infancias y Juventudes like uh childhood different kinds of childhood and kind of about different children working movements in latin america but the researcher who who taught the class um works with children who work in san cristobal right and you'll see a lot of flyers around town for people for families looking for a muchacha de planta or muchacho de planta and it's essentially like a live-in housekeeper or cook or live-in domestic worker right and so she would work for a lot she would go and interview a lot of these people and a lot of them were like indigenous teenagers or some as young as like 12 13 whose families had essentially like sold them to these other families and she would go interview them and like the mother of the family would take them to a locked room unlock the door and then would let her in to like interview them Right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't want to, like, demonize the situation. I love it here, and I think there are many different beautiful parts of San Cristobal and 
all the different uh, intersections of interculturality here. But, you know, it's to come and to just like see the different cultures and uh, say, oh my God, it's so cheap. It's to just kind of barely scratch the surface. There's all kinds of, you know, different environmental and social problems that the people living here face day to day. And I think it's easy as Americans or Canadians to um, come and enjoy this beautiful place. But I think it's important for us to at least be a little bit educated about what's going on here, you know, because it's not just cheap artisan goods, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I think that's one of those sort of terribly ironic things about traveling is, you know, you want to go to these places to learn something. You want to go to these places to sort of expand your perspective on, you know, what's going on out there in the world. And so it comes from a kind of pure intention, but oftentimes you'll go to these areas that have then been ravaged by tourism and really changed. And you're like, oh my God, like, but now I am part of this, this situation changing the landscape. And now a million versions of me have come and gone and transformed it fundamentally from what it once was. And you mentioned when we had coffee the other day that even just over the last couple of years in the pandemic, um, there's just been a massive influx of digital nomads and, and things like that. Maybe we could talk about how things have changed in just the last couple of years. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of anthropologists criticize this phenomenon as kind of poverty tourism, right? Like, oh, isn't it so nice for us to like go to Thailand and look at these farmers on their rice paddies and how they make their rice. Isn't that cute? You know, and it's kind of the same thing here, right? And so because of the Zapatista movement and, you know, it being a beautiful place in a state full of waterfalls and Mayan ruins, and it is just truly, you know, beautiful and breathtaking, um, Chiapas has grown a lot and become like a lot more of a known destination for international travel. Before 1994, no international travelers came to Chiapas almost ever. My next door neighbor growing up came to Chiapas in like the 70s and there was no road to Palenque. Like he rode a horse from Chamula to Palenque. In the 70s. Is, yeah. My dad did the same thing actually. Nice. I was talking to him the other day. He, when he left Vancouver to go to Mexico in the 70s, he'd never even met anyone who had ever been to Mexico. It just <laughs> wasn't done. Vancouver was a really tiny town back then. He grew up on a dirt road which is now for listeners in Vancouver, Deep Cove, which everyone knows is just like a huge suburb. It's completely unrecognizable. But yeah, he did a similar thing. He hiked through the jungle from San Cristobal to Palenque. Wow. Apparently, they were like 22. They had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> um, in retrospect, he admits it was probably a pretty ill-advised journey. Yeah. yeah. I bet it was pretty dope, though. Yeah, you know, I can't help but be kind of... This is actually the... <laughs> 50? Yeah, 50 year anniversary of that trip, which is you oh, know, wow. the timing of me coming down here kind of worked out really well in honor of that. And listeners to the podcast, I do plan on interviewing him and his best friend who did the trip with because they're still best friends and, you know, they talk for hours on the phone every week. So all I got to do is stick a microphone in front of them. And it's, um, but yeah, what were we talking about? The before? digital no nomads. The digital nomads. My dad's. God damn digital nomads. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um yeah so let's see i moved here in 2016 
And, you know, disclaimer, I'm an American. I'm a Jewish-American white woman. I don't claim to not have contributed to the gentrification here. I undoubtedly have just by being here and paying what I do for the things I consume, etc. Um, so I don't claim to be above that in any way. But when I moved here in 2016, um, there, you know, digital nomads weren't a thing yet. Uh, so, but essentially, especially with the pandemic, um, work has become more remote and people have more freedom to be in different spaces. So a lot of digital nomads heard about San Cristobal being this progressive intercultural alternative space and thought that sounded cool. So they came. Um, and because of that, like they've started, they've opened all of these kind of co-working spaces in the center and like every other hotel is advertised as a co-working space now. There's a Starbucks in town now. There's, you know, everything is just getting a lot more gentrified, especially on the walking streets. You know, it's like you can find matcha anywhere now, for example. I do example. love matcha. Oh, no. I love matcha, too. Matcha's great. There's nothing wrong but it's, with matcha. It's, a, it's one but... of the first horsemen of gentrification. <laughs> exactly. The Starbucks and the matcha lattes. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, so that's really changed the dynamic. One, one interesting thing about that is this like club in the market opened up and I had never been I went in let's see in November for the first time I kind of been resisting it because I had been hearing about it for a couple of years now but it's essentially this club and this kind of like warehouse space where you walk in and supposedly you could get like shots of like Molly before but now you have to just like buy it from someone else on the right. side. But it opens at like midnight and it's like this all night club and you walk in and literally everyone is German. Like it looks like Berlin. It is so weird. Like I walked in and I went from being like one of the most, one of the tallest women around to just like one of the shortest. Like yeah. it was, it is just bizarre. Like, so things like that have changed a lot, you know, and it's really kind of extended out from San Cristobal into other kind of neighboring towns too. Like there's this town called Teopisca. It's about 45 minutes kind of like towards Guatemala from here. And like essentially all of these hippies have kind of started these like communes there and bought up a bunch of land and have these kind of like big kind of communal living projects. Um, actually a friend who's also an acro yoga teacher just invited me to like a sustainability weekend at one of them, which actually sounds pretty cool. I have nothing against any of these projects, but it's just an example of like how rapidly things have changed here. Right. So, you know, it went from being a place where no one, there was no kind of international awareness of this town to just exploding in the 90s. And, you know, over the last five years, it's become this place where you can do any kind of Reiki treatment, find 10 different kinds of yoga. And it's cool that it's this kind of, like, alternative lifestyle hub. And that's one of the parts that I really love about it. But it can also kind of venture into the territory of just weird appro cultural appropriation of different like Mayan things that you know of people or people who are doing these things that just have no idea what they're talking about right like 
cacao ceremonies are super popular and i'm sure there are really great cow cacao ceremonies around too but um i don't know it's just there's kind of this phenomenon when you travel through latin america you also kind of see that there's this phenomenon of kind of just kind of weird empty appropriated spirituality that and and i'm not saying that all of it is empty i'm sure a lot of it isn't but um it's certainly like commercialized and commodified and that kind of makes you look twice at what these spiritual messages are right totally well that's kind of life under capitalism it's like everything ends up being commodified then there's a market for that and then the charlatans move in and they start making money off it i think maybe we touched on this when we had coffee earlier this week but the kind of the huge explosion of ayahuasca ceremonies happening all over the world often good intentioned people want to you know deal with their trauma who doesn't have trauma but it's come at the cost of this massive unsustainable industry that is now destroying the jungle to harvest these you know suddenly this massive demand for the ingredients of ayahuasca at the cost of destroying the environment and the culture from whence it originally came yeah so this just terribly ironic situation um, that, you know, sure, a lot of people might not have that intention, but ignorance is bliss. Yeah, and that's the messed up thing about commodification of culture, right? It's because then it happens and then it has very real cultural consequences that, you know, can not only be... Like, for example, um, all of the indigenous women you used to see walking around town or in the markets and stuff used to only sell stuff that they would all make, or that at least that was made in those villages, right? Now, most of the women you see walking around selling like all these polyester scarves, everything they're selling is from China. They buy it in bulk, all from China, and it's not like Mexican handicrafts anymore. Um, so that's kind of like maybe a less significant example. Although, you know, all the different like weaving and um, textile traditions here are super culturally important. I don't mean to like diminish that whatsoever. But um, in terms of language, for instance, it's like then there are all these kind of appropriation of, appropriations of terms or different little symbols from languages like we were mentioning earlier. There's one term that people use from both Mayan Tzaltal and Tzotzil that's called Lakil Kushlechal or Bida Digda or like uh, good life. And people in a lot of different organizations or academics kind of use it as this coverall term for what they think of as like a romanticized indigenous Mayan life. Um, but, you know, when these things are transformed in kind of this, I don't know if I want to say Western lens, but just this lens that kind of commodifies everything, it's spit back out in this kind of mutilated way. And I, I don't I don't want to argue for like the essentialization of these cultures. Like all cultures have contact with one another and we're all influenced by one another. But, you know, these processes that at the very at the end of things just the goal is only to make money. Mm-hmm. It has pretty messed up consequences, you know, like I don't know. Or worse, because one example that comes to mind is the utilization by the U.S. military of 
mindfulness training to train drone pilots to dissociate when they're bombing villages. It's amazing how effective capitalism and the sort of Western world has been at taking all of these elements of things that could actually be used to fight against the ideology and being like, wow, we can sell that. You know, Kurt Cobain, fucking Che Guevara t-shirts, you know? Mm-hmm. It's all... Yeah, and that's 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 the irony of Zapatismo, right? Is because, like, Chiapas became a place on the international map because of cultural resistance and because of resistance to neoliberal ideologies. And they were said, here, no, we're not going to do this here, right? And so that's how it became known... And then that became commodified and commercialized. And now you can go to any of the walking streets and buy little dolls and their balaclavas and buy your paliacate, your bandana, and feel like a revolutionary. But I mean, you're just another tourist buying tchotchkes, right? Like, so it, it's, it's astounding and dark how the commodification of culture seems to penetrate almost everything but that being said you know this is a really amazing beautiful place and i feel so lucky to have moved here and met the people i have and learned everything that i have you know just um i feel truly humbled by being in this space and you know people letting me be here you know so Mm -hmm. i don't mean to demonize san cristobal whatsoever i just People hear about it, and it's like if you Google San Cristobal, it's like or or YouTube video search San Cristobal, it's like all of these quote unquote expats talking about how cheap everything is, and it's only expats if you're white. (laughs) I know know, that's the problem with the term, but um, it's like a bunch of people from Southern California comparing like all these costs of living to San Diego, you know, and I I feel like. There's so much more here it's than so just how cheap it is. Yeah. If you're here, if you're in Chiapas for the economic aspect of it, I think you're kind of missing the point. And just Mexico broadly, like it's 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 beautiful down here. Like it's my first visit to Latin America ever, and I've just been c- consistently blown away by like the the food culture, the art, the prevalence of musicians down here. You don't even have to go look for them. You're just sitting in a restaurant and they just, a whole band will just show up and start playing. It's beautiful. Yeah, and the natural beauty is insane as well. You know, like the, I mean, Mexico, Tulum is now really famous, right? And I mean, the, the comet that killed the dinosaurs is what caused all of the holes all over all the limestoney land in this part of the world. And that's what created all of the cenotes, which are filled by these underground networks of rivers, right? So it's this insane ecological place as well. Chiapas has like an insane amount of endemic species. Like for example, there's this bird here called the trogon that only lives here. It's like the mountain version of the Quetzal. It's like the high altitude Quetzal bird. And it has, the male has these like amazing black and white, like thick stripes on its tail and this big red uh, chest. And I don't know. Here in San Cristobal, especially the ecology is really interesting because it's like, we're pretty far south. We're at like 16 degrees latitude or something, right? But because we're at like 2,300 meters, 
it's a mountainous climate. So it's kind of this mix of like pine and oak trees, but also the original forests here were all cloud forests, right? And so it's like, you, they're pines and oaks, but they're kind of dripping with these epiphytic plants called bromeliads that are just like these almost fern-like things that grow up in the trees and collect all... They're like the things you see in the Amazon that like the frogs live in the plant in the tree, right? So the ecology is super cool because it's like mountain and jungle kind of on top of one another. Um, and it's a huge corridor for bird migration, obviously, through Central America, right? Like Chiapas is the only thing that connects Mexico and North America to Central and South America. So it's definitely a really special place. Yeah. Talking about the diversity and, and before we sign off, maybe to tie this back to the linguistic side of things. Um, 90% of indigenous languages are expected to die off in the next hundred years. It's an incredibly difficult uphill battle trying to save them. In your opinion, what do we risk losing these languages? You know, it's an interesting question because, you know, and I used to debate with, uh, a good friend at UBC who was a computer science major and he would say to me you know like this is natural selection Sophie you know these languages are supposed to die they're a thing of the past there's no coding in Mayan and um, you know Wade Davis has this really, I don't mean to bring everything back to Wade Davis, but Wade Davis has this really interesting and great book called Why Ancient Wisdom Matters. And he essentially argues that these languages encapsulate worldviews and ways of understanding our existence and reality that have been developed over millennia and that really cannot be translated into other languages i mean we have ways of understanding concepts but you know i think languages really do kind of encapsulate worldviews and ways of understanding our own existence and once we start to lose that we start to lose a lot of diversity of just human thinking in general so that's not only knowledge about how to survive on our planet and plant knowledge and things like that, but it's also values and ideals, right? I mean, look at where kind of these Western ideals and values from Western-speaking languages, not from the languages, but we use the languages to communicate. Like, where has that got us as a planet, you know? So it's not to romanticize any of these groups, but... These groups have been surviving for a long time in a really sustainable way on this planet. So, you know, we not only lose philosophies and art and music and ways of thinking, but we lose ways of existing that really in some ways are much more successful than the mainstream models that we have now. Creating this homogenized way of speaking, way of thinking, we're really painting ourselves into a corner and eventually we risk not being able to think our way out of it because the thoughts that could get us there will have been lost. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really interesting in the, in the master's program I did, um, there's this whole kind of ideology in Latin America and Latin America of all these different researchers. And they talk about an epistemology from the South, right? 
And it's just kind of a different way of looking at progress and development and the planet. And they talk a lot about alternatives, right? Not only all, so in this case, alternative ways of thinking, alternative ways of speaking, alternative ways of being. And essentially when we lose a language or we homogenize our planet, we're just losing all of those alternatives. So, you know, we really, really, truly, deeply limit ourselves when, when we lose those alternative ways of being. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing some alternative perspectives. <laughs> and um, you're, you're about to return to Vancouver in, uh, in the next six months or so. Um, Coming back to Mordor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Shout out UBC. Um, do you have anything uh, you'd like to direct people's attention at? Any links or anything at all that you'd like to, to shout out right now at the end? I guess I would just encourage your listeners to read more about decolonial perspectives and how to think about the world in a decolonial way. Um, one of my favorite academics is this Peruvian, for instance, he's called Quijano, and he writes about um, kind of like the colonial power of the world and how that manifests itself in modern day. And I don't know, I just feel like, especially in Canada and the U.S. and all of these, you know, super privileged societies, we could really... Um, we could really learn a lot from a de- decolonial perspective and really create a lot more, I don't know, social equity, social justice within these like priv- this, these spaces of a lot of privilege, but a lot of inequity. You know, I'm from Portland, Oregon, and we have a horrible houseless problem. You know, supposedly there are over 60,000 people living on the street of Portland. It's a huge uh, problem in Vancouver too. And I think that um, getting involved with different projects that kind of restore some social justice to these spaces that are, you know, spaces of a lot of privilege, but a lot of inequity as well are really important. Um, Anyone who's interested in learning more about the nonprofit I work for, we can link on the site as well. It's called Chantik Tach Tachinkutik. Um, its main premise, and it, that's in Tzeltal and Tzotzil, it means uh, learn through play. And their main pedagogical focus is kind of ludopedagogy. I don't know if that's a word in English. It is in Spanish. But it's basically um, learning to do things through play and practice, right? So... Yeah, I would encourage everyone to keep exploring alternatives, learn other languages, learn about other cultures, enrich your life, have intercultural experiences. And yeah, that's about it. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your perspective. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate being here. have it folks episode 16 of the elsewhere podcast with sophie walters i really hope you enjoyed it Uh, as much as i'm really enjoying this lovely marimba music we have playing for the end here i'm seriously considering whether or not marimba should be the outro music for every podcast we do because it's just such a happy light optimistic sound for us to enjoy as we end things 
And that's really the perspective that I would like to leave as we exit the show, because while Mexico has a lot of very serious issues which warrant discussion, one thing that really stuck out to me is that it is a beautiful, optimistic place where people are really making the best of their situations and living a life with joy and appreciation for art and music and more of the simple things in life, which I think is something we could really learn from up here. I live in one of the richest cities in the world, and people here, I've noticed, tend to complain a lot more than places who have a lot less. So, just something to think about there. We're gonna leave all sorts of links, which Sophie has provided in the landing page to this episode at eastvantoelsewhere.com. If you feel like donating or getting involved in some way, I would really recommend you go check some of those out as Sophie really knows what she's talking about. So anything you can do to help any of the organizations listed, I am certain it will go towards an excellent cause. If you would like to support the cause of the Elsewhere podcast, you can do so by talking about it, sharing it with your friends, sharing it on your timeline of whatever social media you use, and by following me on Instagram at Eastvan to Elsewhere. The song we're listening to right now is called Ilusiones by Marimba La Reña de Clinta Lapa. Hope you enjoy it, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Elsewhere, out! Out!